Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thanks for joining us for our final week of the series that we've titled Beloved, as we learn about the unconditional love that God has for us. In response to his love, we're called to share his affection with the world around us. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. As you know, we are concluding an impromptu sermon series this week. As many of you know, again, three weeks ago, Pastor Doug gave his introductory, introductory message to the book of Jude. We covered just a handful of verses, and then life happened, and him and Janet uh, went south to, to begin the celebration of her father's life. Then Pastor Ryan, two weeks ago, started this whole process, and he was thinking that Pastor Doug may be back you know, last week, and so he was just going to do kind of a one-off kind of topic talking about God's love for everybody, and he had titled that Beloved. And then that one series over the course of that week became, or that one message became a, okay, now we're looking at it possibly two, probably three, so we're going to develop this further. And I bring all of that up just to simply highlight how the Lord is sometimes working beyond what we're planning or what we're thinking, right? Our plans have to be fluid. Our plans have to be sensitive to what God is doing. And our plans need to be set aside sometimes when God starts to reveal what his plans are. And so that's kind of what we've been doing and where we've been going. So if you would stand with me, we're going to move into part three. And prayerfully, this will be the final portion of this series Um, We talked about loving one another last week. We're talking about loving the world next week. If we have to make this a a part four, I don't know what we're going to talk about. So hopefully this is it. But we're going to be in Matthew 5, verse 43 is where we're going to start. We're just reading a few verses here, and then we'll get started. So Matthew 5, verse 43. This is Jesus talking, and he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You may be seated. So I know through conversation and, and through being here the last two weeks that Our last two messages have been a blessing for many of us, speaking on the the love of God and then speaking on how we are to love one another, the body of Christ. Pastor Ryan was able to minister to us uh, through what God had laid on his heart. He was able to encourage and to remind us what love is really all about. And I pray today that we will hopefully have a similar result as God continues to speak to us about his love and how we should be modeling that love and allowing it to manifest in our lives. So two weeks ago, this series began with looking at how God's love is offered to us in a number of different ways, but most importantly through his son and the actions of his death 
burial, and resurrection. We took a look at how love is the distinguishing factor and how others are able to identify us as children of God and that it is love that should be our primary focus as believers. Because love is so essential, Pastor Ryan then asked us a question. He said, what is love? Pretty broad, basic question. But he then developed the distinction between agape love and phileo love, the two predominant Greek words for love in the New Testament. And he challenged each one of us to live our lives in a way that demonstrates agape or unconditional love towards others. And as this love is the love of God that he has given to us, we should be modeling that and giving it to other people as well. The Apostle John who we know is known as the apostle of love, referred to the recipients of his letters as beloved, reminding them of how much God loved them. And so Pastor Ryan made a great distinction here when he said that God doesn't call us to love without first reminding us how much we are loved. He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. And that's the the reminder for us is that when we are loving others, it is an encouragement because he has first given us that love. So for God, love is who he is. For us, we know that love is a choice, that we must choose that choice or make that choice every single day. Sometimes we need to make that choice hour by hour or minute by minute. But we are choosing love because God has already demonstrated his love to us. In choosing love, we are choosing to be conformed to Christ. In choosing love, we are choosing to model God. So John's letter was written to believers, who we refer to as the beloved, his brothers and sisters that have been adopted into the family of God. And all throughout John's letters, he's drawing a distinction that was the focus of last week, that love one another. His distinction is made through some key phrases. The most important one is one another. But through this and other phrases like brother and sister, we see that the focus of John's letter is on how believers should be loving other believers. That was the, the entire point of last week. And he made it clear that this wasn't optional. Right? We as God's family need to love one another. So we're going to be spending an eternity with one another. Look around the room. The people that you're here with, you're stuck with forever. They put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They are your, chi- or your brother and sister in Christ. So we're stuck with one another. We might as well get used to liking each other, right? So we have to extend that love that God extended to us to one another, to the body, But God, he loves us, and as I said, it's unconditionally. The interesting thing, and where we're going to shift transition, is that God's love for us did not start when we became his child. God's unconditional love was given to us while we were still his enemies. And so our choice that we know isn't really a choice, it's one of those things where God tells us we can choose, but then Jesus models the way we're supposed to do it, and he ends up giving a commandment. It's like, okay, we have to do this. So our choice is our distinguishing characteristic, and that is to love one another. It's a response to who God is, and it's a response to what he has done for us. 
John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus was very clear that it isn't really our choice. If we are a child of God, this is what we are called to do. Pastor Ryan went on to explain that that is the actual pinnacle benchmark that will, one, distinguish us from the world, but also identify us as Christ's followers. So last week, as the idea of loving one another was developed, there was another group or category of people that was identified. Those that are viewed as the enemies of God. And we see this distinction in two verses that Pastor Ryan shared last week. Romans 5.8 said that, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then the second verse, uh, continuation of what I just read, John 13.35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you love or if you have love for one another. So we have two groups. We have the sinners, which we'll identify later on as enemies or the world. All of those are going to be synonymous with one another. If you hear me say sinners, enemies, or the world, I'm talking about the same group. We have that group, and then we have the children of God. Romans 5.8 gives us our first distinct group, those sinners that I was just mentioning. Those that are in active rebellion against God. They want nothing to do with him or his ways. They deny him or maybe even his existence. They live their lives counter to him. They reject any grace, mercy, or love that he has extended towards them. But in the midst of all of that, God is still demonstrating that he loves that group of people. And he greatly demonstrated that by sending his son to die for them. John 13, 35 gives us the second distinct group, Jesus' disciples or the church, those that have willingly decided to follow Jesus. It's more than just agreeing with his teachings. This group has truly accepted Jesus as Lord of their life. They have placed their faith and trust in the saving work of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They have been filled with the Holy Spirit, and their names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. If you're a part of that group, this should be exciting you right now, right? They have been bought and paid with the blood of Jesus Christ. But Jesus said here that all, all will know that a person is part of that group by how they love others within that group. See, the fingerprint of Jesus, the unique signature that identifies us as belonging to him is the agape love that we extend to our brothers and sisters in the family of God. It is by that love that saints and sinners alike will understand that we belong to him. So this morning, we're not going to focus on the believers, our brothers and sisters, that was the, the focus of last week. But this morning, instead, we're going to focus on that first group, the sinners. The group of sinners, those, rebel, or those that are in rebellion toward God. They're still able to notice something different about his children by the way that they love one another. And we are called to love them as well. So we can see if we do a quick examination of the Bible, starting with Adam, that there are going to be 
two categories of people, and they're what I've been speaking of now. We have the children of God and the enemies of God. Prior to the nation of Israel, that distinction was made among individuals. Abel was a child of God, as we saw last week, while Cain was an enemy of God. Noah and his family were children of God, while unfortunately the rest of all humanity was deemed an enemy of God. And then through Abraham, God established an entire nation that he set apart or sanctified. The purpose behind them was to establish a people or a link between his people and the people of the world. There was a distinction that was set there. God's covenant with Israel was established for several reasons, but from the perspective of the Israelites toward their relationship with other people, the purpose or the covenant was established to bring God to his enemies. Under the new covenant, God's children are still set apart. We have been sanctified through the blood of Christ. Paul tells us that Israel's heart grew hard toward God and the church would be tasked with bringing God to his enemies. It's also important here to note as I'm I'm making these distinctions that Paul clearly mentions and he teaches that God is not done with Israel. They too still have a place in God's plan and in his kingdom. And that's the purpose of what he says in Romans 9 through 11, those chapters. But so all throughout humanity, we have, or all throughout human history, we have two distinct groups. God's children that are culminated with, the, the Israel, or with Israel and the church and God's enemies, which is literally everybody else. In our nation, we get very focused on breaking down things demographically. We've got groups and lists and, and distinctions all over the place. There's really only two categories. You're either a child of God or you're an enemy of God. So another thing that we should mention here is that a person's position in those two categories is not based on their own merit. Our works do not place us in these categories. God's grace and mercy are what places us where we are. We all start out as an enemy of God, regardless of our point in history, whether we were there with Adam and Eve, okay, maybe they didn't start as an, an enemy of God. We know that they chose that and became there, but everyone after them, right, starting with their children and moving forward, we all start as an enemy of God. And it's through his grace and his mercy and ultimately his love that brings us to a place of being a child of God. There were people in ancient Israel that rejected God. They suffered because of it. But there were also people outside of the nation of Israel that committed themselves to God and were blessed because of that. I think specifically of people like Rahab and Ruth. In the New Testament, we see this idea when God extends the gospel to all of the Gentiles, that it is not meant just for the Jews, but that everybody is given the gospel. Our position is based on God's mercy and grace and how we respond to his mercy and grace or how we respond to him. Romans 8, 12 through 17, there's a chunk here that I'm gonna read, but it kind of lays this out. It it shows what we're talking about. He says, so then brothers, 
We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We start out as enemies. It's through his grace and mercy that we become a child of God. And when we are a child of God, we are literally adopted into his family and become co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Two distinctions, but why are we breaking it down? Why are we identifying these distinctions? Because God loves everyone regardless of which category you fall in. But as we're going to see today as we go through this, he does not necessarily love everybody the same. Meaning that the way he treats and responds to each group is significantly different. And that's important. As we develop this, we'll see that our response will also be somewhat different. The way that we love the world is not necessarily the same as the way that we were called last week to love brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians 6.10 kind of points this out for us. It says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. God's universal love is demonstrated through the fact that while we were all sinners, he died for us. For we have all sinned, all of us, as I said, even if we're in the child of God category, we started out as sinners. We have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. But because we were all sinners, we were all deserving justice. We deserve to reap the consequences of our own sin. But God's love for his children, for that first, or the category from last week, provides a very different outcome. We, as his believers, are no longer condemned for our own actions. We are no longer the ones paying the price. John 3, 16 through 18 sheds light on this for us. said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We see in these verses the heart of God. His love is extended to all and to all of humanity. His desire is for any and for all to be saved, to receive eternal life, but eternal life is only given to those that receive, uh, receive re eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. So now this brings us to Matthew 5. We read it like 15 minutes ago. We are going to actually talk about it now. We're picking up in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is going to get specific with how we should love the world. 
So remember, enemies, world, sinners, all of those are synonymous moving forward. So again, let me read Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your, your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So here we have Jesus toward the beginning of his ministry. He's already generating a diverse uh, crowd of people. Each person is there for their own reasons. The religious leaders of the day, they're there, they're assessing the threat, right? Those that have heard of his miracles and his teachings, they may just be simply curious and want to see what's going on. Maybe there are some that are hoping that they will receive their own miracle. Others might be part of the crowd simply out of curiosity. They're thinking if something crazy is going to happen, maybe a fight's going to break out, maybe there's going to be another miracle, maybe Jesus could get arrested, who knows. If something's going to happen, they just want to be there to see it. They've got that fear of missing out, right? So whatever reason they're there, there's a large group that is gathered with Jesus. But there was another group in the midst of all of those people. And they were those that were committed to following him. See, as you moved through the crowd, you started kind of on the outer boundaries and you moved closer to him as he was positioned as a rabbi would, sitting down on the mountain and he's teaching. The closer you got to him, the more details the people that were closer cared about, the better off they were paying attention, right? I notice you in the back. No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. So Jesus, like I said, he was on the mount. He had assumed that teaching position of the rabbi. His voice was projecting through the audience, and he was teaching. All those who were present could hear, but the ones who truly wanted to know what he had to say, they would have made their way toward the front. The backdrop is Roman-occupied Israel. The audience, primarily a group of Hebrews that were all too familiar with living in proximity to their enemies. And as Jesus gave his teaching, he would address components of the law that the Pharisees had added to. He would correct the nonsense and then he would increase the moral standard associated with the law. So this is what we see here in verse 43. Jesus states a part of the law, and that was love your neighbor. That's from Leviticus. He then includes a non-scriptural element, hate your enemy. As much as you search, you're not going to see that command for us to hate our enemy. That's not biblical. That was an addition added by the Pharisees and the people and the culture. But then he counters that non-scriptural element by increasing the moral imperative to include loving their enemies. So he takes what was said in the, in the law, love your neighbor, and he expands that. And he explains, and as he will explain here and in other places, that neighbor isn't as rigid of a line as they would like to make it. So he establishes that they are to love their enemies. This was countering the culture of the day, and it was countering what the Jews had become accustomed to. The literal reality for them was that their neighbor and their enemy, in many instances, was one and the same. 
So in fact, later on, Jesus was asked this very question, who is my neighbor? And with the purpose behind that question, they were trying to find that boundary, like where does my love have to extend and then where can I cut it off? Isn't that the religious or the legalistic way of doing things? We're going to cross our T's, we're going to dot our I's, but then there's no room for grace, We're, we're done right there. We're stuck in our religiosity. Well, Jesus challenges that, and he goes beyond that, and he responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan. He reveals that mercy was the distinguishing characteristic, and he instructs those listening uh, to that parable to go and do the same, to extend mercy to others. And by doing so, you would then be extending love to others. So all throughout his ministry, Jesus revealed the heart behind legalism as being a heart absent of grace and mercy. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is specifically speaking about enemies. He understands that we have enemies and he is calling us to love them in much the same way that we would love our neighbors. The reason Jesus was able to speak about having enemies was because he had enemies. From his birth, there were people that were out to get him. Even at this early stage of his ministry, Jesus knew where he was going. He knew what he had been called to do. And later on in a conversation with his disciples, he offers them some encouragement. And I love when Jesus offers encouragement because if we read it through it the first time, we're like, was that really encouraging? But then when you break it down and you start to understand everything all together, you realize, yes, this was encouraging. So in John 15, 18 through 25, he's having this conversation. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, but now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled in which is written in their law, they hated me without cause. See, Jesus was fully aware that he had and would always have enemies. The more love he showed people, the more hatred he received in return. The more he tried to bring people to the Father, the more they rejected him. And he's telling his disciples and he's telling all of us that we're not greater than he if they hated him, when he is the epitome of truth, when he is the epitome of love, he is the epitome of grace, he is literally the epitome of salvation, and they reject it, then they're going to reject us also. We shouldn't be surprised. See, beginning with Satan and moving throughout all human history, there have been those that have hated God. 
They have hardened their hearts toward him in such a way that darkness is all their life consists of. But they lie to themselves and to each other, and they parade that darkness as if it was light. They view their evil as good. They place themselves in the position of God in their lives, and they live a life perverted or perverting what is good and what is evil. They've twisted it all. But there is no good apart from God. So here's the thing. We were all there. We were all enemies of God. We were all putting ourselves in that position of God in our lives. If we were one of God's children now, it's because we were at the point, at some point in our life, we were his enemy, and it was through his love, his mercy, and his grace that we are now on his side of things. And this is what Peter talked about in his letters. Much like John, Peter was writing to believers, dealing with false teaching and trying to encourage believers to stick together, to remain kingdom-oriented and kingdom-focused, and to persevere to the end. The Bible really, honestly, isn't that complicated. It's reoccurring themes told over and over again because the audience is somewhat dense and needs the repetition. Now, some of you are like, wait, did he just call us dense? <laughs> right? I put myself in that same category. We like to laugh at the Israelites and the stories and how repetitive things are. We're in that same cycle. We do silliness and then we go and we turn, you know, it was like even what Holly said last week when we are understanding his mercies and we're talking about those ideas where he's got our future in control. He knows what's going on. But we get to the place where we start making these ideas and then we come back to scripture that we've seen over and over and over again. It's like, wait, he's got it under control. I don't need to. So yes, I called you dense, but I call myself dense as well. We're all there and we're all there in love with one another. But first Peter, he says in, in chapter four, verses three and four, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of Gentiles. Remember, he's talking to believers here. It says, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Here's what Jesus understands about our enemies. We have them. We used to be on their side. So from their perspective, we're the traitors. Their anger and frustration toward us seems to be based on this fact, but in reality, their anger and frustration towards us is actually anger and frustration towards God, towards the truth. They hate him, and because we have joined him, they are taking out their hatred of him on us. Did you follow that? Right? There's a, a story of an old man. He turned 102 and you know, papers, they like to do, they like to, to interview people that live past a certain age. And like, oh man, that's amazing. And so the interviewer is there, they're meeting with this guy, and they ask him simply, what is your greatest achievement? You live to be 102 years old, what, what would be the, the greatest thing that you've done in your life? And he sat there for a couple minutes and he thought, and he said, well, I have no enemies. 
And they think, man, that's amazing. What, a, what a, a, an amazing proclamation of your life and the, the way to live your life so you have no enemies. He says, no, you don't understand. They're all dead. I outlasted them. <laughs> God is not calling us to outlast our enemies. He is calling us to love them. So he didn't call us to ignore them. He didn't call us to outlast or to best them. He just simply called us to love them. Why? Because the overall hope is that they too will be called a child of God at some point. Jesus' command to us is kingdom-minded. It is revealing of his heart towards all people. 1 Timothy 2. Excuse me, 1 Timothy 2 tells us that Jesus desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. So in a minute, we're going to go through some practical ways that he instructs us to do that. But first, we need to do a quick self-inventory and ask each of you to kind of be reflective as we go through this portion. So I ask the question, who are our enemies or who are your enemies? personal enemies. You may have someone immediately come to mind. You may have a lot of people immediately come to mind. But Jesus told us that we should love them. Much of the New Testament encouragement is directed at dealing with those people, but dealing with them correctly. So remember, we aren't talking about brothers and sisters in Christ that we have disagreements with or that we don't like. That was dealt with last week. You have to love them. You have to get along with them. Case closed, right? That's the beloved. Right now we're talking about genuine enemies, the world. Lovers of the world that persecute you because you follow Christ. Do you have anyone like that in your life? If someone comes to mind, we're going to address it in just a minute. But if you're sitting here this morning and you aren't coming up with anybody, if you're like, man, I don't have any enemies right now, why not? And this is the the reflective question that I had to ask myself. Have you formed such a Christian bubble in your life and around your family that you have little to no interaction with the world? Are you a covert Christian, only sharing your faith with those in the world that you deem are safe or they'll be understanding or maybe they even on some level agree with you? See, week after week, Pastor Doug will conclude our services with a benediction and a prayer. And in that prayer, he often says something along the lines of asking God that our influence on the world will be greater than its influence on us. Right? And it usually gets amens and people are excited about it and agree with it. But here's the thing. Our influence on the world is directly related to what we are willing to share with the world. If they don't know you're a follower of Christ, then you're not really sharing that with them. Your influence is minimal. I don't ask these questions lightly or without, like I said, asking them to myself first. As I was going through this and preparing, I had to think about who my enemies were. And right now, I don't really have any. And I had to ask myself why. 
There isn't anyone in the world that is actively out to get me. And don't get me wrong, I'm not necessarily seeking it. But if I am correctly living my testimony to the world or in the world, it's a natural product. Jesus tells us that. So I thought of family members that I've completely distanced myself from, so there's really no influence there. I thought of past friends or coworkers that are no longer a part of my life. And I work in one of the most evil industries there is. As many of you know, I'm a public school teacher. <laughs> Yet nobody seems to have a problem with me. So I began to realize that maybe I'm not actually doing a very good job at loving the world. I'm not loving my enemies. In most instances, I'm living my faith silently with them. Now for others of you, you're in the trenches. It seems like all you're dealing with is enemies and persecution and hate from all sides. And if you've attended our, our week of prayer, or our nights of prayer, you can see that there are so many people here that are actively praying and seeking the lost through their prayer. And it's family members and it's, it's close ones, it's loved ones, it's, it's people, and in some instances those prayers are extended to people you meet in the supermarket. And so there are many of you that are actively dealing with this. But as I evaluate it in my own life, I realize that there's some things that I need to repent of. There's some ways that I need to change what I am doing. So wherever you are today, Jesus' message here is for all of us. We are to love our enemies. And again, he says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. Jesus has given us two directives here. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute or pray for them. The New King James includes bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. Those are just a, a continuation of love. So they're just extensions there and they're not included in most other English translations. But you don't lose the meaning of what Jesus is saying. Love your enemies. But here we have two very simple statements. Love them and pray for them. So at the very core, Jesus is telling us that our enemies should be treated the same way that we treat our brothers and sisters. And the Greek word here is agape, the same word that we've been discussing the last couple weeks. It is the self-sacrificing love that is given without expectation. And we are to give that love to our enemies. Why do we have to love them? We can say that this seems like a lot of work, it's a lot of heartache. We're just asking for persecution and frustration. So while we, again, you and me, we're still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves them, so we must love them. And again, that love, it's sacrificial, it's unconditional, it's agape love. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. Instead of loving like a child, we grow and mature to love like Christ. In addition to being a, a sign of maturity, there are many other reasons why we should love our enemies. We've been renewed and redeemed by Christ. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and we have a much brighter future than our enemies do. Right? There's, there's a, a thought. If you're a believer in Jesus, that right now here on earth, this is as bad as your circumstances are ever going to get. Your future is bright. If you're not a follower of Christ, right here and now on earth, 
This is as good as your circumstances are ever going to get. For some of us, it's not very good. We have to share the heart of God with other people because it is supposed to be our heart as well. So I think about this question, why? Why do we have to love them? And this, to us, ultimately, it comes down to this is our buy-in statement, right? We ask why a lot. If you're at work, you want to know why you're supposed to do something. I get it from my kids all the time. You tell them to do something, why, why, why? They want to know so it becomes personal to them. So this is our buy-in statement. If our lives, or in our lives, we don't simply want to do what or know what it is we're supposed to do, we want to know why we are supposed to do it. Some of you have heard of a Christian comedian named Michael Jr. Several years ago, he was given a a comedy show and he gave a presentation. And you can look it up now on YouTube um, for Know Your Why, I think is the title. Don't do it now. I'm going to try and explain it to you. I'm going to do a horrible job explaining it to you. So the point of this might not be clear to you until later on when you go home and you watch him say it much better than I, but let me, let me walk through it for you. So he's speaking in his comedy show, and he's, he begins talking to someone in the audience who's a music director from a school. And so he asks that music director, he says, can you sing a couple lines from Amazing Grace? So the guy, he turns out to have a really nice, like, deep voice. It sounds beautiful. The audience claps as he sings through the, the first you know, uh, verse or chorus of, of Amazing Grace. But then Michael Jr., the, the comedian, he says, now I want you to sing the hood version. And everyone's like, what, what's he talking about? He says, imagine that maybe you had been shot in the back or you had just gotten out of prison or you had been mugged and survived or whatever the, the circumstances are, he added some value to it. I want you to sing from the perspective that you've endured and come out of all of those things. So for some of us, maybe our, our view would be completely different than that. But you think about your trials and the circumstances that you were a part of that God has brought you through and now sing Amazing grace. And so, as the guy thought about it for a second, his presentation, his singing was completely different. The music director sang his heart out. The audience was floored. People are standing, they're clapping, they're hooting, they're hollering. There, there's just this sheer emotion that came out of the guy when he brought meaning to what he was doing. And so, then Michael Jr. goes on to explain the difference between those two. He said that the first time singing, the man knew what he was supposed to sing, so he sang it. The second time singing, he knew why he was singing it, and it made it personal, and it made it that much more important to him. So Michael Jr. kind of concludes all of this. He says, when you know your why, your what has more impact because you are walking in or toward your purpose. See, this isn't any different than our Christian life. Jesus calls us to do certain things. And in this case, we are to love our enemies. We can be obedient and do what we are called, but when we know our why, or know why we are called to do something, we can truly invest in our calling. And we can see God doing amazing things 
in and through us. So when I ask the question, why do we love our enemies? We can respond because Jesus told us to. Why do we love our enemies? Because we've been redeemed. Why do we love our enemies? Because I have the Holy Spirit. All of those are what answers. They're not really the why answer. See, if we love our enemies and we get to that why answer, it's going to sound something like this. Because I was like them. I was dead in my transgressions and somehow, someway, the Holy Spirit was introduced to me and I came to a place of submission. I surrendered my life and was redeemed. Because when I look at any person that I know that hasn't had their life restored through the blood of Jesus Christ, my heart breaks. Because hell is a real place and eternal judgment is what we all deserve. When I see somebody that is an enemy of God, I see death. I see separation. I see pain and suffering with no remedy. But I have the remedy. Jesus has shown me the truth and the truth has set me free. And while I can't save anybody, maybe, just maybe, my encounter with them, my love toward them, will be the vehicle that the Holy Spirit uses to bring them out of death and bring them into life. That should be our why. And I got to be honest with you, I'm a long ways away from that. Because when I look at my enemies, that isn't always what I see. But that brings meaning to why we are to love them. That is what Jesus is calling us to do. God has given each one of us a calling and he has given us gifts, both natural talents and spiritual gifts that are specific to our calling. And whatever your calling is, I guarantee you, I promise you, it is kingdom focused. What do I mean by that? We're either to be pointing unbelievers to the cross or we're to be reminding our brothers and sisters what was done for them on the cross. Everything that we are doing is kingdom focused. It is eternally minded. We discussed what we are supposed to do and why we are supposed to do it, but we do need a little bit of application. We need to understand how we are supposed to do this. We see with God, excuse me, that he's put us in these two groups, his children, his enemies, that love is extended to both. But we see some distinctions. So if we look back at Matthew 5, the second part of verse 45, Jesus says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So in reference to God loving all of humanity here, Jesus is making a reference to the idea that while God loves all humans with the same agape love, how he loves his children is different from how he loves his enemies. There are boundaries. For example, eternal life is only for his children. Heavenly gifts and crowns, our inheritance is only for his children. Intimacy, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, fellowship with him, these are all withheld from the world and are only given to his children. In Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, 
Jesus is called the friend of tax collectors and sinners. He gained this reputation because he had been spending time eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. So in Matthew 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to them, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus spent time with sinners. He spent time with his enemies because he understood that they were sick and in need of what he had to offer. Jesus did not spend time with sinners because he enjoyed in partaking in their sin. That's a very important one for us to understand and remember. Jesus didn't even necessarily enjoy their company. He loved them too much to ignore their sin or to join in in their sin. When he was with people, he spoke truth into the lives of sinners. He never compromised the truth. He never remained silent. I think of the woman at the well. Jesus confronted her sin. He spoke truth into her life. He met her with grace and mercy. And then he told her, go and sin no more. Jesus was patient. He was gracious. He was merciful. Thinking of the woman caught in adultery, under the law, Jesus and the Pharisees had the right to stone her where she stood. But that wasn't Jesus' response. Jesus was about repentance and restoration. Jesus' love was always about drawing someone closer to himself. It was kingdom-focused. Christ-like love is a love that is ready to die to change someone's eternity. He was ready to die for his enemies to change our eternity. Because we are not Jesus, we have to take some things into consideration, right? First of all, we need to remember the words that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. It says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. We have to be honest with ourselves. When we spend time with our enemies or with sinners, again, there's no distinction there, remember, which direction is the transformation happening? Are you compromising your or excuse me, are you compromising the truth by spending time with them? Are you spending time with your enemies as simply an excuse to engage in their worldly interests? We have to be reflective of that. And if it's more dangerous for us to be there, if their influence on us is greater than in our influence on them, we may need to st- take a step back and evaluate that. But the second directive that Jesus gave us in Matthew 5.44 was to pray for our enemies. And if you can't be around them without engaging in their sin, then prayer might be the step that you're at right now. Earlier we read a portion of 1 Timothy 2. I'm going to read the whole thing here now so you can kind of see God's 
total heart towards this. In verse Timothy 2, 1 through 4, he says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. That's everybody. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead to peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, that is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. We're called to love. As we wrap up this series, we see that the call to love people, regardless of whether they are a child of God or an enemy of God, the call is there to love them. The priority and intensity we know falls to our brothers and sisters, but we are still called to love the world. And the greatest way that we can do that is to share with them what God has done for us. Our time and energy with the world needs to be kingdom-minded. We have to be evangelistic in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. Our love should be drawing them to the greatest love that we know. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And we know Jesus was talking about himself there and what he was about to do. Our love has to draw the enemies of God to get them to the place where they are the children of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask Josh and the worship team to come up at this time. But I would be remiss if I finished a message on loving the world without then offering for you to have some sort of a response. Many of us are here and are the children of God. And we know that. And last week was, was a great reminder of how we are to love one another. And this week, again, regardless of where we are, some of us may have enemies all around. And we just simply need God to continue to give us the strength to persevere through it. Continue to give love towards those people. Some of us, like I identified myself as earlier, may need to step up our game with how we are interacting with the world. We may need to start extending that love, anticipating and knowing that it's probably going to bring resistance. It's probably going to bring some challenges, but God will persevere us through that as well. So maybe today your prayer is a, a prayer of encouragement and, and strength and God give me that strength to persevere. Maybe your prayer is just simply a prayer of repentance. God bring me to a place where I can love the world as you have called me to. But there may be some of us here that this was difficult because this whole time I was calling you an enemy of God. And I know that that can be a challenge for us to hear. And sometimes our hearts are hardened towards that and you're not going to do anything with it. But today could be the day of your salvation. If God has been softening your heart, he just simply says that if you put your faith and trust in him, and what Jesus Christ did, 
on the cross, that he carries the burden, that he paid the price for your sin. And all you have to do is believe that in your heart and confess it with your mouth. You will be saved. It's a very simple process. In just a minute, we're going to have some people up here praying. And whether you were praying for uh, a change of heart, a change of attitude, a change of, you know, your life as a believer, or whether you're, cha- you're praying for a change of circumstance and a change of position, and you want to no longer be an enemy of God, but a child of God, I want to encourage you to come forward, pray with the people that are up here. Let God do work in your heart today. Thanks for listening to this week's study. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.